Hey Shawnee Baptist, this is Pastor Kevin. I am coming to you from our sanctuary. It is an empty stage. It is an empty sanctuary. Um, it is somewhat awkward to say the least that I don't see your faces out here and there is somewhat uh, a sense of longing. I wish I could be with you guys. I truly do. Unfortunately, the medium has to be this for now. It's different. It's awkward. Um, I'm sure some of you are also feeling that longing and that you wish you could be with each other, that you could gather together. And I think that's a good thing uh, that you have that inside of you because God has designed us to be together. We are one body with many parts. And I think that when we do gather around the gospel, we feel that internally that there's an effect that goes on where God is pleased and our hearts actually are encouraged by being with one another together. And when we're separate, and we can't resonate that gospel kind of all with our voices and worship through music and such. And as we see each other and we're shoulder to shoulder, knowing the difficulties in life that we're walking through, it can become difficult to be apart from one another. So I want you to be encouraged today. I would encourage you even before we get to the passage uh, that I'll continue on in the Lord's Prayer um, is to encourage one another. I know that many of you have family, you have the friends that you are constantly in communication with because that's just your natural gatherings. That's the, the natural people that you hang around. But I would encourage you also to reach out to those that may be across pews that you see on Sunday visually, but you don't typically engage. Maybe you've been thinking about, hey, maybe I'll give that person a call. Um, maybe I'll put it off a little bit. I would encourage you not to put it off. Right now, we're hearing from people who are both encouraged right now and this week, and we have some who are discouraged right now, that they want to gather, that they don't like to be apart from others. And so I would encourage you to take it upon yourself to pray for and reach out to those who are not in your general sphere of influence or your circles that you gather with. It's important to the body to engage the body. Don't underestimate uh, the feelings of those who aren't gathering right now and who are in pain. I would encourage you to reach out to those. Also, some of you inquired and have been utilizing other areas in which you can express your worship through giving. I would encourage you to continue to do so. We're able to meet some needs um, that are arising little by little, but we know that as the weeks go on, whatever this might look like, depending on what the governor says and what the president says, we want to be um, good stewards of our resources. And as they come in, we want to make sure uh, that we are supplying needs that are out there within our body and as members. Uh, and, when, and when we can, that we can also supply the needs of stuff that that's going on in the community like we have already. So if you are worshiping through giving, make sure you head to our um, website to do so. You can do um, shawneechurch.org. You can click on the giving. It's a little header that's there uh, at the top on the right. You can also go onto our app and you can give that way. Both are through PushPay. Uh, the last thing you can do is you can actually text um, 77977. That's the number to text. You can text Shawnee Baptist to, to 77977. Um, and you'll get a link then to go to PushPay. The last way in which you can give, actually, that I just thought about, obviously, is we're getting mail in. That still is happening. So if you want to write a check and you feel more comfortable sending that in, please do so, and you can send that to the address, Shawnee Baptist Church, 303 Oakshade Road, Shemong, New Jersey, 08088. That being said, I'd love to get into the scriptures today that we're going to read. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, continuing in the Sermon on the Mount, and in particular, uh, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, I will read the passage, and then I'm going to highlight some things that Pastor Aaron talked about last week, and then we're going to continue on specifically uh, in verse 11 through uh, 15 of that passage. So let's read. This is Matthew 6, 
verses 11, uh, 7, I'm going to read the whole thing, 7 through 15. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your sufficiency. We thank you for your provision. In all these things, Lord, we know that we have difficulties right now in the midst of something that is out of our control, but we know, Father, that you are sovereign and that you are completely in control. And so that as we learn through your word what it means to pray, what it means to have needs, what it means to have wants, and what it means to care for others in the, in the midst of all of this, help us learn and grow. Help us be convicted and help us be encouraged and that we would grow as a body together and individually in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, uh, Pastor Aaron noted some really great things in regard to the beginning of the prayer. It just talks about who we're engaging, that we're engaging our Father, that God lets us call him that, that those who are in his kingdom have that familial relationship, that we actually use terminology that is our Father. But he's also holy, that he is other than, he is apart from us. And thank God, right? Because we're contingent beings. We're wholly reliant on our Father for these things, that we would want his kingdom to come. In other words, he sits in a sphere that he's in the heavenlies where things are perfect around him. And we want that into our imperfection, that we want his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We know that. God is our Father, and that he wants for us things that will benefit our lives. But there's a reality in that, and that there is sin that separates that at times, and there's sin that comes in to confuse that. And that's why we want his will to be done, because our will oftentimes leads to destruction, if not in line with his will. And so what I think is important that as we go through verses 7 and 8, I think it really lines us up for when we hit verse 11 and we talk about our daily bread. I'm going to read this one more time and just kind of highlight something here in particular. It says this, And when you pray, verse 7, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. So what he's pointing out here is that the Gentiles, as Pastor Aaron has already talked about, they're heaping up these phrases uh, that mean absolutely nothing. In other words, what they're speaking out of their mouths, they're, they're repeating, but it's not going to their audience. Why? Because their audience being, their, well, they were hoping would be God. It's not going to him because their audience is either themselves or others, so that their prayers actually fall on deaf ears. It means it's not being heard. What they're praying is not being heard, at least not by the God of the universe. The God who now sends his son and shows himself through the person of Jesus Christ, who is giving us this prayer. He's saying those aren't being heard because they're actually not even going to God. They're going to their own ears, satisfying their own souls, or they're going to those around them who are looking and actually giving them that, the praise of men. 
And so he's saying, you're, you're not getting what you want because you're not praying to the actual God who supplies what you need. And so he goes on here, and in verse 11, he says this, Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. What he's speaking to here is our physical needs. That this isn't something that is shocking to God. This isn't something that caught God by surprise, that we would ask for something that we, we actually need, that we're made of body, that we're made of a spirit, but we were made that way with the intent of God. If you remember in Eden, in the garden, that we were made to attend the garden, that we would taste of the fruit that is around there, that we would taste of that garden which we were working. And this was all before the fall, that our bodies are designed to have wants, and those wants aren't necessarily a bad thing. But our wants are to be directed to the God who provides for them. That we realize that we are contingent beings, that we are wholly reliant upon God. And our bodies, um, when it cries out for food and for substance and for things, that is one way in which it triggers in us the reality that we are contingent, that we rely on God, that he is our father and that he is our source for these things. But I think what's important to note, though, that there's a difference between what we want and what we think we need, right? Um, We often have desires. Um, You probably go through this with your children, um, or maybe even as you go through budgets and what you're planning for, you look for and you make a list of what are my wants and what are my needs? What do I actually need that is sustaining me? What is something that is on my day-to-day? What is something that is required And what is something that's just, it's a want. I just kind of like it. Oftentimes, those get distorted in our minds because what? We look externally, right? We look at other people and what they might have, and we're not actually listening at all to what God desires for us. And so we're not stewarding the, the resources that we have. And so God says, hey, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus wants us to go to the Father in the sense that we know that this is our daily need. That word daily there is not used often at all whatsoever. The intent there is that adjective is describing something which we just need today, and then we're thinking about the next day. We're not thinking in terms of long term. Remember the audience that Matthew is writing to, these are Jewish people. They're not the they're not the richest. They're not they're under Roman rule still. So in other words, they're capped in one sense. They really feel that. Um, that is there. So they had agriculture, right? They're, they have crops. They have the things that they're trying to grow in which that sustains them. And so they rely upon God and the seasons and the weather to produce something. They're reliant upon him. And then if you weren't there and maybe you were working a trade, you still relied on what was at the market day to day. The difference here within America and what we are accustomed to here is that we can go down to the next big wholesale store. We can go to Costco and we can buy bulk. We can buy 24 of this or 100 of that and we can store it in these things called a refrigerator or maybe even a freezer or maybe even an outdoor refrigerator or freezer. We have multiple ones. Uh, but the reality is that this, this, was, this was not the case. What they understood seasonally and sometimes daily is that if there was nothing that was produced from the land that God's sovereign hand provided the rains for, and that their hands would labor in response to that, then there was nothing for them to have. And so he's speaking to this culture who very much understands this to say, when you think and you pray to the Father who does love you and wants to provide for you, think in terms of the daily. 
Think in terms of what you truly need. Don't think in terms of what is long, that you have to have these big storehouses or these big grain houses, because you don't know what tomorrow will bring. Jesus hits that at another time. But he wants us to think in terms of the day-to-day, our understanding and our need that we, um, that we need God, that we're contingent beings, and that we desire God on the day-to-day to say, you are the one who provides my needs day-to-day. There's also the picture, I think, that is set up on our, the daily bread that the Jews would have very much been familiar with. It is their, the exodus, right? As they left their enslavement, that they, they were now in the desert, longer because of their disobedience, but regardless, God's grace showed up and says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to provide manna from heaven, and this would be on a day-to-day basis. This conjures up that same God that they would have historically knew moved into the in and through the lives of Israel, that is, a, that is his promises went forth. He fulfilled them all the time, not just from slavery, but their physical needs as well, and so that God would provide for them. This would conjure that image in their mind. They would understand that when they come to a God, it's that same God who was faithful to the Israelites then as it would be now, that our hearts wouldn't change in understanding that we're wholly reliant upon him. Give us this day our daily bread. God cares about our needs. As a father, he wants to provide for what our needs actually are. And so we're to come to him and ask for them. There's nothing wrong with that. He cares about our physical needs. And he moves on in verse 12, and he says this, And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is where he takes it, and he changes it from a physical need that we have, and he takes it to a spiritual need. And it's not only our spiritual need— He takes it from our spiritual need to our spiritual responsibility as well. Both of those are encompassed in this setting. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Debt here just is a a term for sin. The Jews Jews would have understood this. It was used oftentimes. It was an Aramaic um, idiom in which debts would often be switched um, to mean or to understand sin here. Um, they would understand that this is something that they had in their lives um, that they would need to be forgiven. And so forgiving our debts and speaking in terms of the effects of our sin as it comes to the surface when our hearts are inclined to please ourselves rather than God. So that is what it's referring to. This is the day-to-day understanding that our sin gets often in the way and clouds our judgment when it comes to seeing God and engaging with God. That is an important thing. And so one commentator noted it this way, this is a prayer for restoration of personal fellowship with God when fellowship has been hindered by sin. Our fellowship on a day-to-day is hindered by our sin, our desire to please ourselves, our desire to do what we want. And we heap up that on ourselves, and we feel the burden of that because what happens is it becomes cloudy, our um, relationship with the Father, how we see God, how we engage God, in the same way, in turn, how we hear God, how we receive from God. Our sin clouds that judgment, that judgment and our understanding of that going back and forth. Um, and we're to be a people who day to day say, God, and even throughout our day, I don't want that there forgive my sin, forgive the debt, forgive that which I incurred because I've chased after my own desires. Yet, 
we can be people that can be forgiven by Jesus on this side of the cross. And they didn't know it then, but what Jesus would do would provide that forgiveness and that throughway would be a lot wider and a lot broader and it would be paved by the blood of Jesus Christ, which is an amazing thing, that that debt would be something that we did not have to carry. Jesus uses this term debt elsewhere and I think he highlights in two different parables which are key, one of which I want us to turn to in Luke 7. You can turn there now in Luke 7. The other is going to be Matthew 18. Um, but I think it highlights the two different ways in which our spiritual need is addressed and our spiritual um, responsibility is addressed. So if we turn to Luke 7, um, verses 41 through 43. Luke 7, verses 41 through 43. The setting here is that the Pharisee has invited Jesus over for dinner. And um, you've got Peter who's there with him. But in walks, during the dinner, a woman who is sinful, quote-unquote, um, from the Pharisee, and she comes right up to Jesus and with tears starts washing her feet. And so that setting is um, that the Pharisee now is like, wait, wait, wait a second here. What is going on? This, this person is in essence unclean. This person is sinful. This woman is at your feet. Do you even know who is in front of you right now, Jesus? And this is what Jesus says as he leans over and discusses this with Peter. He says this, a certain money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. And he poses this question to Peter. He says, now which of them will love him more? And Simon Peter answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Moving on down to verse 47, he says this, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who was forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at the table with him began saying among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? They recognized, obviously, what that meant, what Jesus was stating, that he was God and able to do so. But the reality for us is that we need our sins forgiven. And very much like Jesus points out with this person, this woman who comes to his feet, realizing the need of her debt, as Jesus describes it, to be forgiven, she leaves rejoicing that her sins are forgiven. When we come to God, we have to realize that our sin will get in the way in that it clouds our judgment of who God is and how God relates to us. We judge our love for God, or we judge uh, his love for us often by our love for him, and our sin clouds that uh, judgment. And so oftentimes we don't receive that forgiveness. We don't even understand sometimes that we need to ask it. And so it's foreign from our lips unless maybe bigger sins come into the picture with bigger ramifications. God is saying, no, um, you're a people who have debt. And each day um, the reality is that your sin gets in the way. You need to come to your father and ask forgiveness and God is graciously there every single time to forgive us. Now, there's a difference, and I feel like I need to say there's a difference between our sins being punished that happened on the cross. That was a one-time deal that was done when we were justified before the Father because of Jesus. The wrath that all of our sin demanded uh, was incurred by Jesus Christ, and in turn, he gave us his righteousness. So that's in turn what lets us actually approach God. What this is speaking to on the day-to-day -day is our sanctification, the fact that God is working in and through us and changing our hearts little by little, grace upon grace, changing us so that we look more like the Father. The punishment of that is gone. 
And so each time that we come to God, we, couldn't, we shouldn't come in the sense of, great, I've got to come to you with a transaction that's going to be made and that my debt is going to be laid on the table and that you're going to pay it. No, we're coming with our sin and God lifts our head and says, go, you are free and you are forgiven. And we should leave. This is, we should leave his presence absolutely with joy that this is a good thing. So come to God because we are in need of our debts being forgiven. The next thing he does is he talks to our spiritual responsibility of what needs to happen. Those who are forgiven by God then turn to their fellow brothers and their fellow sisters and they forgive as well. This is something that is happening simultaneously, side by side. This has happened lock and lock and step with our forgiveness and it's assumed here. So if you read uh, back in uh, Matthew, it says this, and forgive us our debts as we have, as we also have forgiven. He talks about that as if that's already being done. The parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18 comes right after um, Jesus teaches us how to adjust each other when there's personal offense. And right after he talks about go one to one, then go one to some more as witnesses, then one to the church. He then goes and stresses the need that we need to be a people, a kingdom people who are forgiving people, that Christians are marked by their forgiveness. Why? Because they understand what's been given to them. This happens, so this absolutely, this forgiveness between brothers and sisters needs to happen. And so what he says in the the parable of the unforgiving servant is the king, if you remember, has forgiven an insurmountable amount of debt to the servants. And the servant is amazed by this. And what he does is he starts going out and starting to collect his smaller debts. And as he goes about his business, there's somebody who had a fraction, a mere fraction of the debt that he owed. And what he did with him is he locked him up and he put him in jail because he could not pay it. And what did that mean? That meant that that family of that individual was then held responsible for that. And oftentimes families would have to go into slavery because of it. But here's what's awesome is that God says, no, 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 that's not the case. The king then comes and says, no, you're going to be judged because you don't understand my forgiveness. I've forgiven you much. Then in turn, you should have then forgiven others. And so he then locked him up. The parable is pointing to the reality of the forgiveness that we have needs to bleed through us to our brothers and our sisters, that as we have been forgiven, we should also be forgiving others. And that should be in our minds on the day to day. What do I look like in relationship to my brother? What do I look like in relationship to my sister? We are a body of believers that are coming together. What does that look like for me? How are my relationships with my brother and my sister? It's important that we take note of that as Jesus wants us to be thinking about that, not only thinking about that, but doing that um, as we do that um, before the Father with our own personal sins. Uh, And then verse 13, he says this, he goes on to say, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Uh, This is an important passage here. I think this is, um, what I'd want to tackle here is that word temptation. Um, Oftentimes we think of, is it saying that um, we're asking God not to lead us into temptation, into temptation as if God can actually lead us into temptation? No, that word there also means trial. Um, That word can mean testing. Um, And I think we have to understand that in context. First, understand who God is. I think scripture, interpreting scripture here is much better. Um, If we go to James, we turn our Bibles to James um, chapter 2, or chapter 1, excuse me. 
Um, we're going to go to James chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. Verses 12 through 16 and, and verse 12. I think this will speak to um, both our part in regard to trials um, and our part in regard to temptation and what is God's part and what role does he play, what role do we play. It says this in verse 12 of James 1, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so what we see there in James is that um, the role of succumbing and walking into temptation stems from where? It stems from our hearts. It says that in verse 14. And the role of testing, absolutely. God is no part of the part of temptation because it says God cannot be tempted, nor does he lead anyone there. He doesn't bring that forth. That is not part. But he does test. Absolutely he does test. Um, the difference is, for us, when God tests us, it is for our betterment, right? It's for our completeness, actually. If you just go up uh, in chapter 1 of James, it says this in verse 2 uh, through verse 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That trials, that's the word there. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God absolutely tests us, and we should be expecting us. Jesus warns that that will happen to the disciples as they go on in the early church. And through Acts, you see that come apparent. You see it in all of the epistles, as both Peter and Paul write to um, their churches, knowing that the testing is happening, but the tempting is as well. But tempting, as opposed to testing, is is comes from two different places. It comes from within, as James talks about, that our hearts, um, when it fully gives birth, those desires that come from our hearts, when enticed, they give birth to what? Death. Tempting in our hearts comes and it brings forth death. There is no completeness in it. When we succumb to it, when we walk in it, when we slide down that slope and look at it, um, then basically it's going to bring forth death and it's going it's to hurt us and it's going to have uh, a byproduct that it generally is going to hurt others. But sin, um, excuse me, and temptation also though comes from the evil one. It comes from outside of us when the enemy does tempt us and lure us into something um, that will come to destroy us, right? The enemy seeks to uh, steal, kill, destroy. That still is something um, that is going to be happening from without. So our hearts, though, are inclined to that at times. And what he's saying is that um, we are doing that in James, but God is defined as somebody who does not test, um, excuse me, does not tempt us in any way. Craig Keener um, notes this passage, um, uh, and I think has an, an important way in which he phrases this. He goes, the issue is not whether some testing will come. He's talking about the disciples uh, and those who would follow Christ, but whether... Um, whether it will find the disciples unprepared. Thus, this is a prayer that God brings us safely through testing rather than deliver us from experiencing it. So this understanding that God deliver us from temptation or lead us not into temptation, uh, what he's trying to say is lead us not to the point where our hearts will deceive ourselves and we go and succumb to temptation in the midst of us knowingly going to be tested. 
God doesn't want that. To, um, God doesn't want that to happen. We need to pray that both um, that in the trials as they come, Lord, hold us up under those trials when they do come, and that we would not succumb to the testing or the tempting of our hearts or something that is external from the evil one. That is important. And so that's the end of verse 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from that evil that is from within, from temptation, or from without that comes to drag us and destroy us uh, from our uh, relationship here and certainly our relationships um, horizontally. I think there's something also to note uh, throughout this prayer, and this goes from the start to the finish of the Lord's Prayer. And remember, this, is, uh, necess- this isn't necessarily um, what exactly to pray. This is a model. This is a general framework in which we should be considering these things and what is being emphasized here. And that as God brings certain people and pictures uh, into view, that we would pray accordingly. But he says this um, throughout the prayer, Our Father, n- note the plural that is used here, our Father, forgive us as we forgive, as we, as we forgive others. Give us, lead us not into temptation. Something really good is going on here. This prayer, though it can be individualized, speaks to the Christian in light of that Christian's knowledge that he's part of the body of Christ. So let's think through this prayer, understanding that we're part of a body, that there's a plural that is being asked here, that is, there's a plural that's being emphasized, I should say, as we come to the Father with these things. We care for what? The daily needs, the daily bread of others. We care for the spiritual health of others. We care for the spiritual footing of others as we, as a body, walk through the trials of this life because we care that they don't succumb to temptation. There is the greater understanding that though you are an individual, as um, Corinthians 12 or as Romans 12 talks about, we're part of the greater body, that we participate in our own way individually, and we're saved individually, but we're saved and we are thrown into intentionally a body that, as Peter talks about, that we're living stones fashioned together. We have to consider our role amongst the many. And that we benefit when we're in unity and we care for each other. That is caring for each other's needs physically. That is caring for each other and praying for each other spiritually. Um, that, that we care for each other, that we don't succumb to, tempta- temptation, to temptation. But that we care for each other and we constantly have this understanding that we're a part of a body of Christ that wants to function in unity together. If you read Ephesians, all throughout Ephesians, it specifically speaks to the body when it functions together well, resonates not only to those looking on, but those in the heavenlies of these are God's people. These are kingdom people. These are people who care about their God and their God in turn cares about them and they care for each other. That is the unity through the bond of peace, through the gospel, that is what brings us. That's the mortar that puts us together, that keeps us together. That we love each other, that we care for each other. And so when we go to God with our needs, we think it's our needs. Yes, individually we should pray. Yes, we have particular wants and needs. But the great thing is that God's designed our body as part of the process by which God uses to meet the needs of the body. I think about this right now as people in the, in the coming weeks that are going to be around us, maybe even among us, are going to be losing jobs. And the need is going to be ever present and more apparent as the weeks go on. That our church would rally together 
and that we would start to meet those needs that are there. And that happens not just on the physical level, but it happens on the spiritual level too as we become dejected or frustrated or confused and we're not understanding God in light of our circumstances, that we in turn become that body that reaches out and engages one another as we think through praying for one another and caring for one another. It's absolutely imperative because we're designed that way. We're designed that way. Uh, Albert Moeller has a quote. Um, he wrote a book called The Prayer That Turned the World Upside Down, referring to the Lord's Prayer. And this is what he says in regard to protection against evil. We're now not congregated together. We're not gathered, but we're scattered. Uh, and some of you like that from a personality uh, standpoint, that you kind of like to be by yourselves, maybe your home bodies. But the reality is that God doesn't design us to be that way. We're actually, even though it's uncomfortable for us, supposed to be, engaging those who are around us and certainly those in the body. But here's something that we don't think about is that when we are away from the body or those who aren't in church who um, claim the name is Christian, atrophy starts to happen, evil sets in. When the sheep is alone, the wolf can more easily take down the sheep. And Albert Muller um, addresses this and he says this, part of the protection against sin that the Lord has given us is being together. Together, we hear the word of God We pray, we sing, we take the Lord's Supper, we celebrate baptism, and hold one another accountable. The Lord uses the local church made up of Christians walking in holiness to keep his people from temptation, sin, and the power of the evil one. Our togetherness should be something that we long for. That's why our reaching out should only be a byproduct of that which is going on on the inside of us as God works and moves in us individually to come together as a body or to reach out as a body or to engage each other as a body. That way, the temptation, the needs, um, uh, the the accountability uh, of the body would continue as we do so. And in verse 14 and 15, it ends with this, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This isn't something that is contingent upon us, meaning that God doesn't sit there and wait for us to forgive our sins. No, that was done on the cross. Um, That was something in which the payments um, and the uh, punishment for that, as I said earlier, has already been done. No, what he's doing is he's trying to highlight something that is throughout Scripture. It is a tree and its fruit, a tree and its fruit, okay? That uh, Christians... Um, who are impacted by the forgiveness of God, in turn are ones who extend that forgiveness to others. I wrote down here, Jesus is saying that those who are in the Father's kingdom have care and concern for others in the kingdom, knowing that they are a people who are forgiven much. Those who know God bear the fruit of that experiential knowledge, meaning they're experiencing that on the day-to-day. It's real to them by extending forgiveness to others. If you are not extending that forgiveness to others, then you have not understood what it means to be a person who is in need of forgiveness, and in short, you do not know God and are not walking in his forgiveness. The downside of that as it ends uh, in that particular part there is that it means you're probably not in the kingdom. If forgiveness isn't a part of you as a Christian on the day-to-day with those who do offend you and that's not on your radar, I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying it's something that, that, that should be on our dashboard that we're doing that. That as we offend others, we expect their forgiveness and hope for it to be restored. We also extend that forgiveness, but only in light of knowing that we have been forgiven much. If we don't understand that, 
that we've been forgiven much, that our debt has been paid by Jesus, if we don't understand that, and that's not awakened our heart, most likely what's not going to follow suit is us not forgiving others. We're going to hold grudges, there will be bitterness, there'll be division, and we'll try to pull as many people as we can onto our side of things as we divide the church. But the reality, unfortunately, is that that when that happens, that person probably is not even a part of the church, and they're a wolf dividing the church. We don't want that happening at all. And so Christ encourages us throughout the prayer that understand God, understand who you're speaking to, as Pastor Aaron talked about. Know God. He's our Father. We can call him that. We're his children. He knows our needs. He's holy and other than, but I want his will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And our daily needs, he knows them. You know, in verse uh, 8, yeah, in in verse 8, he says this, Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask them. He knows our needs. As Pastor Aaron said a couple weeks ago, that us praying is more in light for our hearts to be changed than it is for God's. God's heart isn't going to be changed um, when we pray. Understand that. Our hearts are what is being now drawn into line with his hearts, and so that we understand who he is, and we understand what our needs in light of who he is. That is our good God, and Jesus says, hey, this is a structure by which you can pray. Know who God is, and thus in light, know who you are, so that you can function well together as a kingdom of believers who cares about their king. Church, be encouraged today. I know that even today there might be more news from our governor, maybe more news from our president, uh, and tomorrow it might be different, it might be heightened, it might be tightened, our budget might look different. But let us not look to that as something that would eclipse our understanding of who God is as our Father, as our provider. The gospel is laid out throughout this entire passage here. Know that Jesus understands who you are. Not only that, but when he went to the Father and he intercedes for us now, he sent us his Spirit so that in turn we understand that in our hearts he is our Father and that he knows our needs and that we could come to him freely with those and that he helps us understand God rightly because of his revealed word, because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, and that we, in turn, hold that in hand when we go to our God and are confident that he hears us and that he will reward those who diligently seek him. We'll get to some of those. And I think more feet are put on these on this prayer as we go through chapter 6 and into, and into 7, as we deal with anxiety, what our needs actually are, as we deal with fasting and our treasures. Where are our treasures? What are we trying to hoard right now? Is it something that is everlasting? God knows that. That God has given us his son, Jesus, that we can come to God without the shame. We can come to God knowing we'll be forgiven, and we can come to God because he is good to us. And we can have a seat at the table of our father, the ultimate king. Understand that we have a seat at the table of our father. And that's something that we can take to the bank. He's paid our debt. We are free. We can live not in want, but in the provision of our Father, who's paid it all. That's a good thing. Church, be encouraged this week, regardless of the news. Reach out to those in the body. Know that God has provided for us through many resources, and sometimes they come through the people here that we are shoulder to shoulder with. Let us reach out with that gospel message to those who don't even know proclaiming his name, that he is good, and that never changes. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your provision. Thank you that you are holy and other than, and that this 
um, situation, what we walk through, what we go through, has been provided for, that this is not a surprise, that you are our Father, you know our needs, and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.